Welcome to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast, a weekly conversation about mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. For more information or to find a therapist in your area, visit our website at therapyforblackgirls.com. While I hope you love listening to and learning from the podcast, it is not meant to be a substitute for a relationship with a licensed mental health professional. Hey, y'all. Thanks so much for joining me for session 272 of the Therapy for Black Girls podcast. We'll get right into our conversation after a word from our sponsors. Nowadays, a lot of these big companies pretend to care about our communities and issues with nothing more than lip service. State Farm is the opposite. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help educate in financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow Black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something they care deeply about. They want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Farm understands that representation alone doesn't mean authenticity, that it takes a good neighbor to sponsor programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, and to fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of black and brown youth that to date participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey ladies, it's Dr. Joy. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month, and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the Pressure wants to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first, and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com slash RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com slash RTP. I've seen quite a few videos on social media recently of young women soliciting help in finding the perfect dress for graduation. Might I suggest you add Macy's to your list? They have lots of options for dresses that will transition perfectly from under your gown to that incredible dinner with family after the ceremony. Check out options from brands like On 34th, Michael Kors, DKNY, and many more. Shop at Macy's.com or in-store. You may have heard that most people who are Black have O-type blood. O is commonly needed for emergencies. But did you know one in three of us is a match for patients with sickle cell disease? Regardless of blood type, every day our blood saves lives and eases the pain of those living with sickle cell. Donate blood at Red Cross to help save a life. Black excellence is in our blood. Visit redcrossblood.org slash ourblood to make an appointment now. Buying your first car can make you feel like a superstar as it's a big purchase, but it can take time to get there. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Whether you're trying to manage your money or trying to run a business, Intuit gives you the confidence to take control of your finances so you can live your best life. 
Intuit helps you take control of your finances through products like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. Over the years, there have been many public conversations around academic institutions failing to adequately support Black women, leaving many brilliant sisters feeling burned out, discouraged, and undervalued. At the same time, the desire for Black women to pursue higher education and secure tenure roles at universities still exists, and rightfully so. Black women deserve a seat in higher education just like everyone else. The question is, for those who want to pursue higher education, what should they know beforehand? Joining me today to discuss Black women navigating the academic arena are Professor Helen A. Neville and Dr. Della V. Mosley. Professor Neville is an educational psychology and African-American studies professor at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Dr. Mosley is the co-founder of Academics for Black Survival and Wellness. In our conversation, we break down the difficulties Black women face while pursuing tenure-track positions in academia, what Black women should consider in their assessment of whether to get into academia, and what other pathways exist to pursue higher education. If something resonates with you while enjoying our conversation, please share it with us on social media using the hashtag TBG in session. Or join us over in the sister circles to talk more in depth about the episode. You can join us at community.therapyforblackgirls.com. Here's our conversation. Well, I am just so thrilled to be with you both today. I'm very excited to chat with you and to just really have you be able to share your expertise and so much of your knowledge related to Black women in academia. I'd love for us to get started by just talking about what do we mean when we talk about Black women in academia? Like, what does that cover and who does that cover? I want to first thank you so much for the invitation to be in community and be on this podcast. It means so much to me. When we think about what are we talking about, Black women in the academy, we're thinking about people on tenure track, people that are specialty faculty and clinical faculty. And I realize that might not mean anything to our listeners. So just real quick, tenure track is for faculty that are part of teaching institutions or research institutions. And that essentially means if they work for six years, seven years, and they do what they should be doing in terms of their research, teaching, and service, they can go up for tenure. And you go up for tenure, and in your seventh year, if you're granted tenure, it means you have job stability and permanency. So you have a job for life if you decide to stay in that position. There are also what they call clinical faculty, and clinical faculty can teach about clinical issues or teach undergraduate courses, but it's not tenure track. And that essentially means that after this six or seven year probationary period, they might not get this job for life. So that's essentially what I mean in terms of academia. Nowadays, we also have a whole range of other kinds of configurations where you can have people teaching part-time. You have what they call adjunct faculty that are part of the academy, but it doesn't have this tenure-track status, which is important in terms of giving you academic freedom, allowing you to research the kinds of questions you're interested in, allowing you to teach the type of materials you're interested in. 
Got it. I really appreciate you explaining that, Dr. Neville, because I think that that is confusing. I know for a very long time I was confused about what that meant to be tenure track and how you get that. And I still think that there's a lot of not controversy, but it feels like specifically for people of color, Black women specifically, this whole journey to tenure track can be very fragile, I think. And like, there's a lot of bumps and bruises, I think, along the way. And so, Dr. Mosley, I'd love for you to share because you recently made the decision to leave a tenure track Uh position, right? And so I'd love to hear a little bit about what made you decide to pursue that opportunity in the first place and then what impacted your decision to leave? Yeah, thank you, Dr. Joy. And I'm also really happy to be here in conversation with you all and to be talking to the Therapy for Black Girls audience. I didn't start out in academia or start my grad program thinking I wanted to be a professor. It was through having really great mentors like Dr. Helen Neville and Dr. Candace Hargons, who made the professor role look attractive. I was someone who came in to grad school and later to my doc program thinking that I wanted to do, you know, community work and serve the queer and trans youth of color, maybe have a center, things like that. But seeing the reach that these academics had and the way that they could bring more of themselves to the job that I didn't see some of the majority white faculty members who I had previously been engaging with have, it made it be like, oh, I can see myself here. And then, yeah, being able to have that what Dr. Neville was saying about the freedom to study and pursue the questions that you most want to pursue and have that like safety to do that and to bring in the students to a doc program to train with you for several years to get into that work really deeply. That was exciting to me and alluring to me and why I pursued a tenure track job. So my entire doc journey, I was doing the work so that I could have different options of whether I want to do clinical work or do advocacy work or have that center, but also so that I would be competitive on a tenure track job search and ultimately chose that path. But yeah, lots of bumps and bruises came along the way. And I only ended up staying at the university on the tenure track path for three years. So not that long career that I had hoped for. And there's lots of feels about that. Hmm. Do you want to share any of those fields or what <laughs> made you decide to come off of that path and pursue something else? When I started my master's program in school counseling, I knew from day one, I kind of like, I knew what my assignment was. I was coming off of some work, some really awesome work at a job course center in DC. And I knew that my work was to create more spaces of safety and wellness and healing for queer and trans people of color and black people, like period. And so following that path, it made sense to do that through school counseling. It then made sense to pursue the doctorate and then to start this research lab and continue to do my work in the university setting that way. But in summer of 2020, when the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and so many others were taking center stage, it was calling non-Black folks to desire some education, which it's the type of education I had been doing as a counseling psychologist. And then it was also calling for Black folks to need spaces of healing, which is what I had been doing as a counseling psychologist. So in that summer, one of my doc students, Paris Bellamy, who is now Dr. Paris Bellamy, and I co-created Academics for Black Survival and Wellness. And that was an initiative that lasted over the summer. And we got to work with great folks like Dr. Neville and so many others. And we reached 16,000 people that first summer offering these trainings and providing a a free healing space for Black folks. And so I had this shift where I was able to see 
impact and to have that impact while doing work with folks who I really enjoy doing the work with, who in a space where I could be well while I did the work, that was a major shift for me. And then I go back to the university that fall and it's anti-Blackness as usual. It's back to the business of the university that is not working with folks who care about my safety and wellness as much and not appreciating the power and impact of what our work and this work could do and not feeling like I could make it the same sort of impact that I was able to make in just a summer. And so I really started to grapple with where I should be and how I can best complete my assignment. I was just looking back, I'm writing a a paper about this right now, and I was just looking back at the goodbye note I sent to the department faculty and I talked about it as like leaving an abusive relationship and that's really what it felt like you know one that you had sort of I had been doing so much fighting to make it work here you know how do I make it work I went so far as to create this international initiative right I'm trying to see how we can make academia safe for black folks and to reach its potential for black folks and so I'm doing all this fighting and I don't want to leave because the the kids are still going to be there and still exposed to some of it and the kids being these mentees and students who I love so much but really in that note, I was saying, you know, I had to, I'm choosing to model something else that we don't have to be abused and that there are other spaces and places for us. And yeah, I'm still in some sadness around that, but also feeling the relief and the wellness that came from protecting myself, my spirit, and finding other ways to serve the communities that I care about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and such impactful work. And I really appreciate what you said about seeing people like Dr. Neville, Dr. Hargons, Dr. Phelps, who was my major professor, right? Like do all of these really cool things, it feels like in academia. And so then you feel like there is a space for me. Look at these sisters. I, you know, they're doing all these things. And then unfortunately, I think there is often a reality check like, oh, Yes, they are doing amazing work, but I don't know if this is my lane, right? And so, Dr. Neville, I'd love to to hear from you because you are someone, I think, you know, especially in our field of counseling psychology, it feels like you have been the one of the people who has like ushered so many, I think, specifically Black women into the field. And so I'd love to hear from you what has really aided in your longevity and what kinds of things would you share with someone who maybe wants to follow in your footsteps but doesn't necessarily see academia as a place that like really can allow them to thrive? Thank you for that question. I really like this question. And as you were asking it, I was reflecting on my own kind of career. I have been in academia for about 30 years now. So it's a long time. And when I think about the question, I reflect on, like, why did I even go into academia? What is my purpose here? And there's a couple of things. One is when I was on internship at University of Southern California in their counseling center doing therapy, I was like, I got to go to plan B. This is not going to work for me. Okay, so we got to figure something out. I loved seeing clients but I also knew that was not where my passion was. And so I figured I would go into academia because I also enjoyed doing research. It was at a different time. And what I did was I gave myself the seven years. I said, okay, I'm going to go to the University of Missouri, Columbia. I'm going to see, okay, can I make it being my authentic self? Because I too was unwilling to compromise my youth for a job it's, it's just not worth it. 
And what I found in academia was that I was able to really find what my meaning and purpose and passion was. And I'm in higher education so that I can help and cultivate young minds so that I can serve as an advocate for African-Americans and other students of color so that I can show them that there's a different way. I can be a source of support. Like I really feel as that that is what I am called to do. And so when we have all of this other information and all of this other toxicity, I kind of remain that Students really need somebody there to advocate for them. And this is something that brings me meaning and purpose. I'm also interested in working with white students in developing a sense of critical awareness about racism and other forms of oppression. And so to be able to do that work is really important. The second thing that really draws me in and keeps me in the academy is I love to do research. I love it. I love to think about ideas. I love to do research that I think will help improve our communities. And I can't think of any other job for me, there's other jobs out there, but for me that would allow me to do the work that I feel passionate about. And then when I think about like, well, what's kept me here? All of that has kept me there. But I remember Dr. Joseph White and others. For those people who don't know Dr. Joseph White, he's considered the godfather of black psychology. And he has somewhat of what I would call a Dr. White mantra or proverb from Dr. White. And that is, you don't look to those of the oppressors to validate you. And having that message early on gave me permission to look to other people like me who had similar values to get feedback. And that feedback could be critical feedback. We don't want to say, oh, yes, you're great. We want critical feedback so we can improve. So when white folks didn't like what I was doing or didn't approve of me, all the kinds of stuff that we know happens, I was able to reflect on that. And I think that's really important. And the other thing that I think really saves me is in my academic positions, I've had joint appointments in Black studies. And so that then says the work that I do centering Black voices matters, no matter what anybody else says. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Neva. I think that that's incredibly helpful. I got goosebumps as you were sharing Dr. White's words, because I think that those are so important. And I really appreciate what you said about it, like being your calling, you know, because as Dr. Mosley and I talked a little earlier about like her feeling like that wasn't her calling. And it's okay for us to have different ones, right? And so it's okay to pursue something and then figure out like what my talents and skills would be better served somewhere else, right? And so it sounds like a lot of that is what you've done, Dr. Mosley, in creating academic for Black Lives and, you know, all of the work that you're doing there. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I appreciate everything you just shared, Dr. Neville. There's a lot of talk lately of Black women, particularly leaving academia, but just folks leaving academia. And I had mentioned Paris just defending her beautiful dissertation two weeks ago and, and how amazing that was. And But what you're sharing, Dr. Neville, is like that joy around the research and having access to the academy as a space where the thinking and idea making and like where all the resources for that happens is just so real and so powerful and it was so joyful it was like a big part of why I chose that pathway and so it's right after her defense and this beautiful celebration the tears of joy of her crossing that hurdle and what we did together were were there but then when I was alone it was 
the tears of grief that I wasn't able to have my own safety and wellness in that setting and that I'll maybe only have two to three other students who I see through to a dissertation. I think I'm feeling that again in this moment as you shared about how you were able to persist and how special that is. I'm feeling a lot of gratitude for you being there for 30 years to see so many PhDs through because it's a special process that many of us can't make it through. So thank you. Well, I just wanted to say, Dr. Mosley, I think I am so inspired by you and the work that you're doing and by younger folks charting out their path. When I was going through, it was like either you do academia or you do counseling and applied work. Now you all are creating centers and podcasts and revolutionizing how we think about wellness. Both of you all are doing that. And I find that incredibly inspiring and how you are dreaming big dreams, dreams that really weren't available, at least not to a working class person like me going through schools, you know, public schools, et cetera. So I'm loving how you all are redefining what you can do with a PhD. And I am in gratitude to you both. Thank you, Dr. Neville. I appreciate that. More from my conversation with Dr. Neville and Dr. Mosley after the break. Hey ladies, it's Dr. Joy here. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month. It's crucial for us, especially as Black women, to focus on our heart health. We pour our heart and soul into every aspect of our lives, but often our own health takes a backseat. That's where release the pressure comes in. It's all about us, Black women seeing self-care as an essential act of self-preservation. Whether it's for yourself, your family, or our community, your health is invaluable. Let's help to get our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Here's how you can join in. Head over to iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. Let's make our health a priority. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP today. Together, we can make a difference in our health and our lives. Join us and let's take care of our hearts together. Nowadays, a lot of these big companies pretend to care about our communities and issues with nothing more than lip service. State Farm is the opposite. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help educate in financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow Black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something they care deeply about. They want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Farm understands that representation alone doesn't mean authenticity, that it takes a good neighbor to sponsor programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, and to fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of black and brown youth that to date, participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now, online and in-store. 
Some of my favorites are the jewelry from Hey Maeve and the skincare products from Kaja. For the entire month of May, join Macy's in supporting AAPI-owned fashion brands. You can show your support by donating online or by rounding up in stores to benefit APIA scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. Join me by rounding up your purchase to the nearest dollar at checkout to support API scholars, an educational nonprofit. Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander owned brands at Macy's.com or in store. How many times have you arrived in Orlando and suddenly realized you forgot the kids? But then you remember you had no intention of bringing the kids. You are in Orlando to enjoy yourself. It's an amazing opportunity to have fun and experience all the fun Orlando has to offer. Sure, Orlando is known as the theme park capital of the world, but there's so much more to this destination. It's the place where adults can become kids again, and happy hour happens any hour with never-ending food festivals, fresh new dining experiences, and outdoor adventures from zip lining to its beautiful natural springs. And, of course, fireworks every single night. Plus, you have loads of entertainment options, see unique neighborhoods, and can even visit their blossoming arts and culture. Orlando has everything for an amazing getaway with your loved ones or friends, including exciting thrill rides, lush, lazy rivers, and world-class golf and spas. Yes, there's more to see, do, and experience than you'd expect. In Orlando, anything is possible if you can imagine it. Plan your escape today and save at visitorlando.com. You may be aware that most people who are Black have O-type blood. O is commonly needed for emergencies and life-saving measures. But did you know one in three of us is a match for patients with sickle cell disease? You, along with the American Red Cross, regardless of your blood type, can help by donating blood. Every day, our blood saves lives and eases the pain for those living with sickle cell. When you donate blood, there is a direct, positive impact within our community. Right now, there is great need for blood donations in the African-American community. Every donation counts and makes a difference in someone's life. Donate blood at Red Cross to help save a life. Black excellence is in our blood. Visit redcrossblood.org slash ourblood to make an appointment now. So Dr. Mosley, I wanted to explain some of your thoughts about the safety and wellness that you feel like is really critical to protect Black women in academia. Can you say a little bit more about that and like what that might look like? What it would look like to have the safety and wellness while going through the program is, I think it's, it's like what got me through my PhD and what I hope I was able to provide to my students while I was there. But it was having mentors, educators, advisors who allowed you to be a learner. I think that so often Black women in academia go into a space where one of the only Black people there or Black women there, and especially if you're in mental health or counseling realms, then you're being asked to be an educator more than you're allowed to be a learner. And so the safety to like not know and to not, you know, be the spokesperson to be able to bring in what you do know that might not fit for your people as you're learning new theories or techniques and to be able to have someone like actually 
give you something useful that you can use and bring back to your practice. I think that's what safety and wellness looks like. It's being able to get your needs met in the academic space. And that's really rare for Black women, I think, even today. And so when we have those educators who can answer those questions or who allow us to push whether or not they know the answers and who push back on the other students or other faculty members who might be pulling for us to take on other roles versus being that student in a, in a training program. That's, I think, a way of safety being provided. For Black women navigating academia, I think it's important to have someone outside of your university as your mentor, someone who you can go to to help you figure out what you're getting through and how to get through it that doesn't have some of that power over you in the system that is going to be granting you your degree or doesn't have to worry about the relationships or less likely to have to worry about relationships with other faculty members as you bring those problems. And Dr. Novel was that for me. And so I think that's one pathway towards safety and wellness in the academy. And safety and wellness also comes from not having to be the only one. So when I was recruiting students, I often tried to bring them in to our doc program in pairs or after I knew that there was someone else who was studying something similar to them or was going to be on a similar timeline as them so that they wouldn't have to be the only one. I think just being intentional about how we are with Black women when we're bringing them, especially into primarily white, historically white institutions, is a way of providing safety and wellness. So thinking about who they're coming in with, what the rest of that cohort might look like, and then being the kind of mentor that sees them as a whole person and is about them succeeding professionally in their mental health career or career as a psychologist, but also who are they as a person and how can they have as much wellness as possible in a holistic way as they move through the program. Not that we have to be the ones to provide that, but to be in conversation with them about that, to allow them to know that they are more than just their academic selves, that it's a gift for them to bring more than just their academic self to this space. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Dr. Neville, you mentioned it feels like the world is so much bigger for PhDs now, right? Like I agree with you historically, it has been either you had a faculty job or you had a clinical job, right? At least in psychology or the mental health fields. So can you say a little bit about what makes it attractive for someone to pursue a PhD right now? What kinds of career opportunities open up with a PhD? A lot of opportunities open up with a PhD. I think it allows you to have a sense of credibility in your particular area that can open up a lot of different avenues for you to establish whatever dream it is that you want to do. Of course, people are dream making and achieving those dreams without a PhD, but it gives you that sense of credibility. I also think that there's other things that are particularly important for Black women and Black women who are first-generation college students or who don't have access to some of the social capital that many of our white colleagues do. It gives you greater financial security, and it can help you and your family and your community because of that financial security. It allows you to engage in meaningful work with your degree because it opens up a whole range of doors and opportunities for you. I think higher education can be so rewarding if you are privileged enough to be able to pursue higher education, that you grow as a human being and as a person. And by your growth, your family grows and your community grows. So there's so much that you're able to do with a higher education. So don't let folks tell you that a PhD doesn't get you anything. It gets you a lot and it provides a lot for your families. 
And so I think those are really important. And what people don't know is that if you do get a PhD, most programs worth their salt will pay you to get your PhD in the sense that you do not have to pay for the actual college credits, et cetera, and that you will be able to get a teaching assistant position or research assistant position. Now, whether or not you're able to really live off of those wages, that's a whole different story. But while you are going to college, you hopefully won't leave with as much debt as you might have accrued as an undergraduate or in a master's program. And Dr. Neville, I wonder if you could also share, because you talked earlier about the tenure track piece, but I also have heard from colleagues in academia about some of the difficulties. So, you know, sometimes the research that Black women want to do in the academy isn't always approved of or thought as highly of. Also, to your earlier point, Dr. Mosey, you talked about being this listening ear for students. So we know that there are a lot of like tasks that Black women typically take on in academia that do not count towards the tenure portfolio. So I'm wondering if you can kind of speak to some of that. Yeah, there are a lot of tasks. Some people say that some of the work that we do, we should be paid hazard pay for some of the things that we do. Not that the work that we do with other Black students, but the work that we have to do with white colleagues and white students to sit and bear witness to their racism and take that in. So I guess the things that I struggle with is the balance between what I get from it and what I have to put up with. And there are things that Black women have to deal with in the academy in terms of having the opportunity and privilege to work with students with the demands of having to do research. You have to set some boundaries there. The other thing is having to deal with gendered racism or what like Gioni Lewis talks about, gendered microaggressions, where things are targeted specifically toward us as Black women. Like I had a white male colleague who felt the need to disagree with me in every single public setting. Anytime that I made a statement, whether it was in front of students or whether it was in front of faculty. And so at those times, you just have to dig in deep and understand who you are and the strength and tap into my larger purpose. There are many ways that we are dismissed. But again, reflecting back on Dr. White's words, I do not look to white people and their systems to judge or validate me. So I've always decided that I will publish the work that I want to publish in the journals that I think are most appropriate. And if that is not good enough, then I need to find another way. So I have been really privileged that way. There are other people who've done the same. And I would encourage people never, ever make yourself smaller or to do work that you do not think is important or to silence yourself. Because what I have seen is that when women particularly silence themselves so that they can get tenure, when they get tenure, they do not speak up after that point. And that many times they don't achieve what they want to do. So live your truth loudly every day and boldly, and you will find a place if that is not your place. The other thing that I think people don't realize is that there are different kinds of academic institutions. There are research-intensive institutions, which Dr. Mosley and I have worked in, that have a different set of expectations. 
And there are teaching institutions where you teach more and you have an opportunity to work more closely with students that don't have the same research demands. So people really need to kind of think about what might be the best fit for their goals. So I also hear in your question, like, why the heck would anybody want to go into academia and stay in there? And I guess I feel a little bit guarded because I'm like, come, come, come. But to your earlier question that I realized I did not respond to, that people should go in with their eyes wide open. And I feel incredibly privileged now to be in the field of counseling psychology versus other areas of psychology because it allows me to do things that are important, things related to liberation psychology, where I can talk about anti-racism. And I realize that is not available in other fields. So if people that are listening are thinking about and contemplating what program to go into or what field to go into, do your research to think about will you be able to be cultivated and nurtured as a learner you are in the areas that are of interest for you as a total person. Thank you for that, Dr. Neville. Yeah, you definitely heard that in my question. I didn't necessarily want to ask that outright, but I do think it is so difficult because you do, like Dr. Mosley said, you are hearing so many sisters right now talking about leaving academia, right? And I think there's something particular. I think it was always tough, but I think there's something about the pandemic, of course, that has like accelerated this for people, especially I've also heard colleagues talk about, you know, like their research, like the bans on CRT and all of this stuff. And so now like the president presentations and the work that they were doing for people who maybe at like state funded schools is even being further scrutinized. Right. And so I think there's something about it right now that feels really difficult. And so I appreciate you putting that into context that just go in with your eyes wide open and kind of know what you're getting into. So Dr. Mosley, I would love to hear a little bit more about Academics for Black Survival and Wellness. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit more. You talked about it being started summer of 2020 when I think it was very, very greatly needed, but it has since continued. And so can you talk to me a little bit about the growth of the program and the theme for this year? Because it is continuing. So tell me a little bit about what's happening. Yes. Thank you so much for that question. Paris and I, along with Sunshine Adam, who's been another one of the primary organizers of Academics for Black Survival and Wellness, we came up with the theme this year of Pathways to Liberated Black Futures and have decided that it's going to be our last run of Academics for Black Lives because we came in trying to do this intervention within academia to see what academics who were finally, quote unquote, so woke in this moment around the anti-Black violence that's happening everywhere. And they were really alerted to the ways that it was happening you know, through police violence. And we wanted to bring the attention to the way that it happened within the academy. And I shared a lot during that first year about how my own pathway to academia was led by or sort of fueled by a close friend of mine who didn't make it through grad school due to anti-Black racism and the depression and pain and suffering that she faced afterwards. And so it was like, no, this has to stop. And y'all want to be so woke. Y'all are in these streets. Y'all are putting up the Black Lives Matter signs everywhere, but y'all still acting a fool in these classrooms. Y'all are still acting a fool in these training sites. You're being anti-Black while claiming Black Lives Matter. And so let me show you how it manifests in these academic spaces in hopes that we can redirect something. And it did. I think we did accomplish that. There was change that was made. I heard from Black students afterwards say, my professor went through your course twice and now my experience with them is different. I like going to lab now and I can talk more about things that matter to me and I can do the work that matters to me without having to 
create a pre-presentation to get to the work that I want to do, right? And so there was some change that happened. This year's Academics for Black Lives are really going to be reflecting on how was Black survival and wellness facilitated through this intervention or not? Who was bolstered through it? Um, I was invited to be in serve as an expert in a grant-funded study that some white scholars who were a part of Academics for Black Lives decided to do as a result of their learning about anti-Blackness through this project. And I'm like, great, y'all have went through it. This project looks awesome. I'm, I'm happy to serve as a, an expert committee for this. And I joined it. And the other white scholars who are on the grant who didn't go through the program are benefiting their careers in these major ways while gaining these grant funds and CV lines and connections within their professional networks while not actually doing anything to better Black folks' lives, Black students' lives, and particularly what this grant was written up for. And so we're pulling off of that and making a, a statement around it. But I believe as I'm looking back, and I you know, haven't done any studies on it, and so these are all just anecdotal things, but as I'm looking back between summer 2020 and now, I feel like there's a lot of non-Black folks who have used anti-racism and this learning around anti-Blackness or whatever to benefit their own careers and the experience of Black students in their spaces are still the same or worse. And so we're going to be grappling with that question and trying to talk about and really explicate what are the pathways to liberated Black futures? What do we know has worked? The ones that are inside the system, what are the labs? What are the universities? What are the nooks and crannies within the system that will help us to be well and to do the work that we want to do and get the letters behind our name that we're aspiring to or to get the tenure that we're aspiring to like where does that actually exist and then also what are the pathways outside of academia and how can you find them and how can you assess whether they'll be good or not for you especially since a lot of it is new terrain like the wells healing center which i took my lab from the university turned it into a nonprofit center and i'm going to be doing some of the same mentoring and training and teaching that i was doing at the university through this pathway and there's a number of others like that who are starting to create other initiatives, projects, centers to get to it. But then how do you find the one that's the right fit for you? How do you assess it, in, especially in the absence of accreditation and things like that? And so hopefully we'll be able to share knowledge and maybe even start to build a new blueprint for how we can find those pathways and how we determine what is the right pathway for us while also identifying some of the ones that we know have worked. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. More from my conversations with Dr. Neville and Dr. Mosley after the break. Hey ladies, it's Dr. Joy here. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month. It's crucial for us, especially as Black women, to focus on our heart health. We pour our heart and soul into every aspect of our lives, but often our own health takes a backseat. That's where release the pressure comes in. It's all about us, Black women seeing self-care as an essential act of self-preservation. Whether it's for yourself, your family, or our community, your health is invaluable. Let's help to get our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Here's how you can join in. Head over to iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. Let's make our health a priority. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP today. Together, we can make a difference in our health and our lives. Join us and let's take care of our hearts together. Nowadays, a lot of these big companies pretend to care about our communities and issues with nothing more than lip service. State Farm is the opposite. 
They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help educate in financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow Black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something they care deeply about. They want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Forum understands that representation alone doesn't mean authenticity, that it takes a good neighbor to sponsor programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, and to fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of black and brown youth that to date participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers. State Forum believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Forum is there. May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now, online and in-store. Some of my favorites are the jewelry from Hey Maeve and the skincare products from Kaja. For the entire month of May, Join Macy's in supporting AAPI-owned fashion brands. You can show your support by donating online or by rounding up in stores to benefit APIA scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. Join me by rounding up your purchase to the nearest dollar at checkout to support API scholars an educational nonprofit. Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander owned brands at Macy's.com or in store. How many times have you arrived in Orlando and suddenly realized you forgot the kids, but then you remember you had no intention of bringing the kids. You are in Orlando to enjoy yourself. It's an amazing opportunity to have fun and experience all the fun Orlando has to offer. Sure, Orlando is known as the theme park capital of the world, but there's so much more to this destination. It's the place where adults can become kids again, and happy hour happens any hour with never-ending food festivals, fresh new dining experiences, and outdoor adventures from zip lining to its beautiful natural springs. And, of course, fireworks every single night. Plus, you have loads of entertainment options, see unique neighborhoods, and can even visit their blossoming arts and culture. Orlando has everything for an amazing getaway with your loved ones or friends, including exciting thrill rides, lush, lazy rivers, and world-class golf and spas. Yes, there's more to see, do, and experience than you'd expect. In Orlando, anything is possible if you can imagine it. Plan your escape today and save at visitorlando.com. You may be aware that most people who are Black have O-type blood. O is commonly needed for emergencies and life-saving measures. But did you know one in three of us is a match for patients with sickle cell disease? You, along with the American Red Cross, regardless of your blood type, can help by donating blood. Every day, our blood saves lives and eases the pain for those living with sickle cell. When you donate blood, there is a direct, positive impact within our community. Right now, there is great need for blood donations in the African-American community. Every donation counts and makes a difference in someone's life. Donate blood at Red Cross to help save a life. Black excellence is in our blood. Visit redcrossblood.org ourblood to make an appointment now. 
So you brought up the Radical Healing Collective, and I'd love to hear from you, Dr. Neville, as one of the members of the Radical Healing Collective, what that is about. And I mean, so timely. I mean, you all, I think, created this several years ago, but it definitely feels like that radical healing is needed very much now. So can you tell us more about the Radical Healing Collective? Oh, thank you. Thank you for that question. So the Psychology of Radical Healing Collective really grew out of a presidential initiative on promoting wellness through social justice. And so, I don't know, 2017, 2018, around there, um, well, even before that, I was invited to run for president of APA Division 45, which is the Society for the Psychological Study of Culture, Ethnicity, and Race. And to help out with that, the presidential initiative, I put together what I call the dream team. And Dr. Mosley was on the dream team. And she was one of the co-directors, along with Dr. Brianna French, of the co-chairs of the task force. And Dr. Hector Adamas, Dr. Nayeli Chavez, Dr. Gioni Lewis, and Dr. Grace Chen. So people who are powerhouses in their own right. And Dr. Mosley was a student at the time, and she was co-facilitating this. And really to think through, what would this look like? And where the team landed on is the concept of radical healing. There's people who've written within that tradition, like Sean Ginwright in education, but we have folks in psychology, like our current president-elect of the American Psychological Association, Dr. Tama Bryant-Davis, Dr. Lillian Comas-Diaz, and other people have written within this. Essentially, what we're talking about is how do we, as people of color, become whole in the face of this incredible amount of racial and other forms of oppression? And what do we do within our communities and how do we fight for justice? Because we know that justice is going to assist us in liberation and freedom, both individual and collective. So the task force turned into a collective of just like-minded scholars who wanted to get the word out about individual and collective healing. And so we have three articles out now that talk about this, another one getting ready to be put under review that really is a qualitative study on radical hope specifically. The one article that Dr. French and Gioni Lewis uh, led that outlines the psychology of radical healing, and I say this just to show you how it's resonating with people, has about 40 plus thousand downloads and views because People of color are wanting a strength-based approach to understanding who we are and our healing that both acknowledges structural oppression and taps into and acknowledges our cultural strengths, are wanting to experience joy, are wanting to be authentic and show up authentically in this world. And so we are just a group of scholars committed to trying to foster and develop this through scholarship and workshops, and we've got a blog that we have and other kinds of things. 
Such exciting work. And I think that is the the kind of work that, you know, when you talked about earlier, Dr. Mosey, right? Like when you see that being done in academia, it is really exciting, right? I think it's important to think about, you know, like that this battle is like fought on lots of different areas, right? So some of it is happening in academia and some of it's happening in the Well Center, right? And so multiple different spaces where we're having these conversations, I think is really what kind of moves everything forward. So I'm very excited about the work, very excited that it has been downloaded that many times, the radical healing paper, because I think it's important. And I do think, especially for the field, it gives us a different framework for talking about like this moment in particular, but like what happens as we move forward as well. So I'd love to hear from both of you as we prepare to close up, what words of advice or wisdom would you share for other Black women who are considering academia, currently in academia, considering leaving academia? What kinds of things would you want to share with them? I'll go ahead and start. The first is that Black woman sisterhood is strong and alive, and you can rely on that for your entire journey, wherever your pathway will take you. So to trust that. The second is squad up, create your village, whatever you're going to need. It's going to take a village to nurture and cultivate you and that you can belong to. So these are people that are going to be mentors in your village, peer mentors, colleagues, other folks you want to come along with you. I think those uh, things are important. The next one is that you are enough, you are strong, you belong, and you can be vulnerable in that strength and you belong in whatever space you decide to be. I think that is critical. And the last one is that you also have a responsibility to other people to not only be who you are, your success and trust in that, but you have a responsibility to be in community with people to make things better for yourself, in the environment, for your community. We have responsibilities to give back because our ancestors have done that for us. And we need to do that for the people who come after us. That was fire. I wanted to share, and we can do whatever we want, and that after sharing that I left the university, I've been getting a lot of DMs or emails or messages from folks who are congratulating me and looking at me as a model who's like, who's made it by making it out of the academy. And I have a hard time when I receive that because I want the academy to be able to be for us. And I don't have any regrets about getting my degree and all the fights that I did throughout my doc program to get that degree. And I don't have any regrets about pursuing the tenure track. And I don't want people to feel like it's not an option for them. I want Black women to know that like we can have whatever we want and that we deserve to be in these spaces and that we also deserve to have our wellness. And so I think my advice or invitation or hope is that we're able to be in a constant assessment process of our wellness and able to really tell the places and spaces that'll help us to get closer to it and know that we are resilient. (laughs) We are so resilient. And so if you have to fight and not be as emotionally well or socially well while you navigate an academic space in order to make it through that space so that you can be more spiritually well, financially well, et cetera, later, do the calculations that you need to do to make that decision about what's right for you. 
I think it's important to like recall and even going back to the radical hope model and radical healing, it's really important to think about what we have survived, what we can do, what we have done. And so I need us to remember that we can get through and that we can go through, we can get the degrees, we can get the tenure if that's what we want. And at the same time, we can be constantly assessing where else we can get social support and where else we can get the training and the tools that we need if they're not coming from those spaces, where we can heal the wounds of racial trauma that are happening while we are in these spaces. And who can we strategize with to create something different, whether it's inside or outside of academia? And so, yeah, we're ready of wellness and constantly be assessing where you can get it from and decide when and where you want to make the sacrifices. Thank you for that, Dr. Mosley. You know, I just wanted to follow up on another question because you talked about creating the Well Center as like, this is my thing now. Like, this is what I want to do. You and I have had conversations in the past about like loving training, right? And wanting to continue to provide trainee options. And at some point, can we have a postdoc through Therapy for Black Girls through the Well Center, right? And I just love to hear, because I, I, I think a part of it is that it feels difficult, like you mentioned, like the resources that the Academy has, right? Like the research, and, you know, all of these things. Have you seen other pathways for not necessarily accreditation, but maybe some kind of accreditation or places where you can go to get resources for these like alternative centers that people may be creating still in the psychology space, but not in academia? Oh, I wish I could say yes. (laughs) Unfortunately, (laughs) no. I'm in a stage now of I've been bootstrapping and fundraising and really navigating relationships and expanding the networks that have been supporting the projects for Black wellness or the projects focused on racial trauma. So trying to identify the folks who are doing that work and giving those funds to the university to see who they might support outside of the university. But it's hard and it's slower. And I think we need to draw attention to this and call for more support in this area. For the folks who are creating new pathways outside of academia, I hope that we won't be forced or pushed towards recreating an academic system outside of academia. So having accreditations that are still upheld by white supremacy, anti-Blackness, sexism, heterosexism, ableism. And there's no bodies out there that'll quote unquote, do accreditation that hold that kind of that inclusive value. And so I think we have to develop it. And there are some folks who we can look at in other fields or disciplines. I think about like what Rachel Cargill's done with the great unlearn and the quality of training that gets offered and the way that they vet that. I don't know the the rubric, but I think if there's a bunch of folks who are doing that work or who have done it over the last several years, who have a level of quality and who can sort of show some receipts for the impact of their trainings, of their work. I think we can come up with ways that are outside of that white supremacy, but still provide some some greater sense of like trustworthiness to the audiences who will be coming to us for training. But we don't have it. So we don't have the funding that would support us to really understand more about that, nor do we have the systems that'll like give that vouch yet. And nor do I think we necessarily need those. We're in a baby stage and it's exciting to be here. And I hope to spot up with you and others who want to continue to play with the pathways and to create, yeah, the liberated pathways. Mm-hmm. So tell us where we can stay connected to you and your work, Dr. Mosley, with your website, as well as any social media handles you'd like to share. 
Yes, please check out my website, delavimosley.com or wellshealing.com or my new baby black feminist play space, blafemhealing.com. And on social media, I'm on Instagram at dvmosley, M-O-S-L-E-Y. And I'm on Twitter at delavimosley. And actually that was wellshealing.org, delavimosley.com, blafemhealing.com. Thank you so much, Dr. Joy. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Mosley. And Dr. Neville, where can we stay connected with you? I think on Twitter, Helen Neville12. I think that's the best place. And thank you so much. This has been filled my heart to spend some time speaking with you, Dr. Joy, and of course, with you, Dr. Mosley. Thank you, Dr. Neville. Such a pleasure. Thank you for being here, both of you. I'm so glad Dr. Neville and Dr. Mosley were able to join me this week. To learn more about them and their work, visit the show notes at therapyforblackgirls.com slash session 273. And don't forget to text two of your girls and tell them to check out the episode right now. If you're looking for a therapist in your area, check out our therapist directory at therapyforblackgirls.com slash directory. And if you want to continue digging into this topic or just be in community with other sisters, come on over and join us in the sister circle. It's our cozy corner of the internet designed just for Black women. You can join us at community.therapyforblackgirls.com. This episode was produced by Frida Lucas and Elise Ellis, and editing was done by Denison Bradford. Thank y'all so much for joining me again this week. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you all real soon. Take good care. Hey, ladies. It's Dr. Joy. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month, and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the Pressure wants to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com RTP. You may have heard that most people who are Black have O-type blood. O is commonly needed for emergencies. But did you know one in three of us is a match for patients with sickle cell disease? Regardless of blood type, every day our blood saves lives and eases the pain of those living with sickle cell. Donate blood at Red Cross to help save a life. Black excellence is in our blood. Visit redcrossblood.org slash ourblood to make an appointment now. Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also empower you with a sense of complete control? Enter Conair Girlbomb, your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results made just for women. From the ultimate Girlbomb grip and professional grade blades, you don't have to compromise and settle for less. Conair Girl Bomb equips you with the precision and power previously reserved for men's grooming tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girl Bomb. Available at conairgirlbomb.com or a retailer near you. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. 
Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Nowadays, a lot of these big companies pretend to care about our communities and issues with nothing more than lip service. State Farm is the opposite. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help educate in financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow Black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something they care deeply about. They want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Farm understands that representation alone doesn't mean authenticity, that it takes a good neighbor to sponsor programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, and to fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of Black and Brown youth that to date participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.